And hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sister to Sister. I'm Trish Carr with Women's Prosperity Network, and it's a pleasure to have you with us. And today is, a, is going to be a great conversation with my friend Terry Harrison. You know, the whole idea of this podcast, YouTube, and Facebook uh, Live is so that we can have the uncomfortable conversations. If any of you were watching The Bachelor this season, or even just one night, which I watched last night, uh, Emmanuel Acho, who is the host of Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, he had an uncomfortable conversation with the two pr the principals from The Bachelor, and it was all about what happened at the end of the season. So if you haven't seen that yet, you might want to take a look. It was a really eye-opening uh, conversation. And it's really one that we as white people who are socialized as white need to see because it's a, an interracial, it's a, it's a racial insensitivity that happened. And it's while it's racial ignorance, what Emmanuel said was it plays out as racism, even though you are not racist. So it's a really great conversation. And my conversation today is going to be just as lively. And that's with my friend, Terry Harrison. Terry is, first of all, she's a certified mastery facilitator for something called higher brain living. And what she says is when you upgrade your mind and learn how to use the inner technology to upgrade your life, it changes everything, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So she lives at another level with her brain and she uses this amazing brain that we all have um, more than most people because she's trained it to work in her favor instead of against her. But here's the here's what I want to share with you about Terry this morning. She was raised very traditionally in a patriarchal family in a lily white values kind of place. And um, she was raised with bias against anyone who was not Caucasian or Catholic. Now, I can relate to the Catholic, Terry. <laughs> having been brought up in Catholic school, it was sort of like having a Jewish friend was unusual, right? Right. So I can absolutely understand. And your parents moved out of Denver uh, when the public schools started forced busing and you moved to a really white school district. So you grew up as a, in a white school, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And, and then- Affluent white school. Say what? An affluent white school. Oh, okay, great. And then you bucked the system. Mm -hmm. And I guess your parents didn't want you to join the army. No, uh, it being a patriarchal society, this, this system that my father created for the family, it wasn't my role to be in the military. It was my brother's role. He didn't want it. I was actually using it as an escape from a, a bad marriage, a, a violent marriage. So it was not looked upon as a positive thing for me, especially when my father spent 20 years in the Air Force and I joined the Army. It was just <laughs> not happy times for, for mom and pops. That's sort of like Catholic Jewish, same thing, right? You got to yeah. be in the Air Force. But then you went into the Army and you were in the Women's Army Corps. And not long after you were in, they disbanded that, right? Actually, they disbanded it before I got in. I was oh. in one of the first training units uh, where we trained side by side with the men. 
So my company was three platoons of men and one platoon of women, which was the first time that that had happened um, in South Carolina anyway. Yeah. So that's another story about the, what you dealt with being a woman in the army. Yeah. Yeah. Another story. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> well, while you were in Augusta, Georgia, in signal school, that's when you met Charles. And Charles is an African-American, and that was back in 1980. And you got married a year, uh, a year later, and it was, tell me about how that was right around the time the laws changed for you to get married. When we went down to the courthouse to get our marriage license, the uh, woman behind the counter was, was looking at us, and she says, you know, we just made this legal a year and a half ago, and I probably just dropped my jaw because these are these are things that I I was raised white. I did not have these outside knowings of really what was going on in the world. So I was kind of shocked that in 1980 they had just made it legal to even have or be in an interracial relationship. Yeah, it, it it's shocking. I mean it is Okay, so it's 40 years ago now. 40 years, 40 years. I know, but when you think about the 1980s and it was so free and, and it was after the 60s, like everything, you think about everything happened in the 60s. And while I think the Supreme Court ruled in the 60s, it didn't really happen. It was probably the county, uh, whatever Augusta is, whatever the county is, and finally came into the 20th century. So yeah, so that was a trailblaze too. So you say that that's when race relations education really started for you? Indeed, indeed. Because Charles and I would be in the same car together going somewhere and uh, we'd get run off the road just by being in the same car. If we, one time we went to Atlanta and we were going for a concert. And so we come back from the concert, it's like you know two o'clock in the morning and we had been locked out of our room. And when I went to find out, they were like, well, your credit card is no good. And, you know, it was, it was through the grace of three white men who were still sitting outside that went to the office and said, let them in their room. It's the middle of the night. This is crazy that they let me back in the room. And they said, well, you have to take care of this in the morning. So when, we, when I went there in the morning, it was a different clerk. And they said, oh, I don't see anything wrong with your credit card. So this was just something that the night clerk, in my opinion, <laughs> that the night clerk had decided that he didn't like. So they were going to do whatever they needed to do. To get rid of you from the hotel. I and mean, this was in the city. This was in Atlanta. This was in Atlanta. You know, it's so funny. I lived in Atlanta for from 1990 until 2001. And then it seemed to be such an open city because the city of Atlanta is more than 60% black. Correct. But it's not so. I had conversations with people who live there. And even in the year 2000, there were KKK rallies down Peachtree Street. So you were really talking about buck bucking the system. Yes. And then where did you live at that time? Were you in South Carolina? No, we were living on base, uh, on, you know, the post. So, you know, we were protected by the culture of the military. It was very easy 
to be married interracially in that bubble. But when we left the bubble is when we found, <laughs> when I found that people didn't think the same way that I did. And I was having a hard time understanding that. And I know several times with situations that we got into um, being an interracial couple, my white privilege would come out and I would be boisterous and belligerent and be like, you know, what the heck are you doing? And Charles is like, literally, you know, he's tapping me on the leg, like, you know, shut up. And I didn't understand that, you know, I was standing up for our rights and, you know, all of that. So I had to learn, <laughs> I had to learn that there's two sets of rules in this country. And learning that was difficult for me because I had not been exposed to it because I had been raised with the privilege that I've been raised with. Then I started to use it to our advantage. I remember we got stationed to Maryland and I was like, oh, finally the North, <laughs> let's get out of the South. Well, Maryland's not so, wasn't at that time so much the North. It was still South of the Mason-Dixon line. And we went to get an apartment and Charles went in to get the apartment on, on a specific day and they didn't have any apartments ready. They, there was no apartments available. So I was like, okay, let me see. So I went in and rented the apartment. This was within a day. So I started to use the bias against people. And it was like, well, if you're going to have the bias, I'm going to, you know, show you <laughs> that there's ways around it because I've always been a little rebel. So um, yeah, just strange occurrences, you know, me learning that It was, and it was difficult for me learning that there was two sets of rules. I would imagine it, it, it was, but the fact that you were able to use it to your advantage is, is a wonderful thing. What do you say to people who say there's no such thing as white privilege, that I had to work three jobs to get where I am? And what do you say to people who say that? <laughs> that they're just unaware, that they need to... Um, really break through the bubble that they're in and open their eyes and look around. And if they don't believe it, go into a store, a small boutique store with a black friend and observe, look, watch. You know, I had a, a, a discussion with my brother when he was here and um, he had not heard the term white privilege until Black Lives Matter. So he, and he has, his own political feelings and thoughts. Right. And he was like literally upset with me because I was using this term that Black Lives Matter brought right. into existence. And I told him, I was like, I've been using that term for a long time because I observed it a long time ago, you know, and he couldn't see it. Like he, he just didn't have that perspective to be able to see it. And one of the things that I think we need in this society to heal this racism is to get a different perspective. 
And that's why I applaud you for doing this podcast. It's, you know, it's an opportunity for people to listen and question what their own thoughts are. Yeah, well, just what you just said about Charles going in to rent an apartment and it, there were no vacancies. And then you went in the next day and it was, hey, come on in, come on, <laughs> come on, right? And all the stories that I've heard, you know, that are along those lines, the white father who went to the bank to sign off on the mortgage papers that were approved, but he brought his black daughter and the banker was shocked. And all of a sudden the loan wasn't approved anymore. I mean, I get that those are individual decisions to a degree, but then you get into the system of racism and anywhere in particular that you've seen that, I mean, the apartment is one, what else did you run into? Uh, there was one time, this one comes to mind, this was again in Maryland, um, we went into a restaurant for breakfast on Sunday morning. The breakfast was, or the, the restaurant was crowded. And as they were walking us to the table, I noticed that the entire restaurant went quiet. And so I was like, you know, I started to look around and everybody was staring at us. And I was shocked at first. And then I just straightened up my back and I walked with pride, you know, to our table and I was not going to allow them to allow that feeling to take over. But that was, I mean, there was, even within my family, you know, first of all, when we got married, I was, uh, I was disowned for three years until they actually allowed Charles in the house to meet him. And for 25 or 30 years, my mother didn't even tell her family that I was married to a black man. Wow. You know, I mean, like it was just this big secret. So there was a lot of shame that was being, that was trying to come through, but I just wouldn't allow it because there was just, oh, there, why? There's no shame there. Right. Right. But it's got to be funky at the very least to be feeling like you're hidden by your family. I just took that as, you know, my mom's issue. Um, I didn't really grow up with her family. Um, so a lot of my cousins and stuff I've just gotten kind of in touch with as an adult. Mm. Um, but there wasn't, I mean, my world shrank. There's no doubt about that. At one point, my own prejudice came up towards white people. And I just went into the black community because I was accepted, because not always accepted, but generally more so than I was in the white community. And then I had to, to heal that. I had to realize that this is a, a part of me that is feeding into a bigger racial issue. And I had to heal it within myself. Now I can't heal it in anybody else. This is, this is all inner work that everybody has to do. But I just realized that people just have to question what they think they believe. 
Right. That's, that's it. That's the question. You know, we, I was talking about the bachelor and last, so the issue with the bachelor was one of the contestants and this came out after the taping was finished. One of the female con- contestants or bachelorettes, whatever they call them, um, had pictures online that were uncovered of her at an antebellum party. And that was in 2018, which was only three years ago. Now, so she's from Cumming, Georgia, which is outside of Atlanta, which, listen, when I lived in Atlanta and people said I lived in Georgia, I'd say, no, I live in Atlanta. Let's be clear, because it's a totally different place. And I I don't mean to sound negative. All I know is that they tend to, in the rural areas, have more biases, right? And so she's from there, she grew up there, she was in college, she didn't know any better because she didn't realize that staging an antebellum party is a slap in the face, is hateful to African-Americans. So, and I can relate, I'm socialized as white. Like when we first started talking about you don't do a Halloween party with blackface, everybody was going, what's the problem with that? We've been doing it all along. But that's where what the host was saying, Emmanuel Acho was saying that it's racially insensitive and racially ignorant. And what the woman said, her name was Rachel, was she said, I now question everything. I never questioned anything. Had I only thought about what's the impact on people and what, is, what does the antebellum period really mean? And it actually is before the war is what antebellum mm-hmm. means. So when you just said the same thing, it's about questioning what you believe, what's the right thing, what's the not right thing. And I think that um, you're living the life that you've lived. You've questioned a lot, I would imagine. I do, and I still question a lot. You know, I still may be walking down the street and have the urge to cross the street. You know, I mean, that is a classic move, you know, and I, I have to question myself why, you know, because there's the fears that we have. Number one, they're, you know, they're in my unconscious. So I'm always questioning. And number two, I think we feel the collective on that as well. But we have to question when something like that happens. Why? (laughs) What is it that I want to cross the street? Right. Why? Because there's a Black person behind me and usually a Black man, let's just say that, what, what gives me, you know, why do I want to lock the car door? Why do I want to walk across the street? Because it's somehow in my DNA. It's somehow mm-hmm. in there. And you've been with a black man for almost 40 years and you still find yourself doing that. I do. I do. I'm not, I'm not proud of that, but it is a fact. It is, it, it just is, you know, but I can't go back to just, well, you know, that's just the way it is. I can't do that. I have to find out why am I still feeling that way? Why is there still this inner struggle with somebody who looks different than me? And, and you sleep with somebody that looks different than you every night. So go Very. figure. Very. Go figure. <laughs> you know, I really appreciate you saying that and sharing that because 
you know, we're, we're, I think that is the answer. You know, I always like to ask my guests and, and I'm asking you now, if you were to give somebody advice so that they could grow in this area, it sounds like starting to question things, but how do you even get the awareness of what to question? Just it's, I guess it's awareness. Higher brain living probably can help. Well, that certainly certainly helped me a lot on, on that, just getting down to the nitty gritty and the core, but also just opening your eyes, understanding that we're looking through the filters of our upbringing, of society, of what we see on TV, of the news, of what you read. We're looking through all of these filters. And so these filters are changing what we're actually seeing. So you have to be able to get to the point where you're looking at your filters and not through them to be able to transcend them. Well, that was really good. That was really good. We've got to get to a point to be looking at our filters, not through our filters. Thank you. That was really, love that. I love that. Anything you want to leave our guests with as we're closing for today? Compassion. We have to have compassion. We have to look at our society, at our people, which includes all shades, all hues, all religions, all sexual orientation. We just have to look at them and that they are just a different aspect of who we are. And when you start to realize that we're all part of God, we are all on this planet to experience God in its fullness, then it makes it a little bit harder to look at somebody and look down on them. That's beautiful. That is really beautiful. Terry Harrison, thank you so much for sharing your experience. I so appreciate you being here. You know, the purpose of this show is to open people's eyes, open people's minds, and ultimately open their hearts. And you've been able to do that today. So thank you so much. And thank all of you for watching, for being a part of uh, sister to sister. Thank you again for sharing this on your pages. The more we can have these conversations, especially among white people, it's not up to black people to educate us. No, we have enough to, to know that it's up to us. So thank you again, Terry. Thank you all. Have a fantastic day. I'll see you again next week with another episode of sister to sister. Thank you, Trish. Thank you.